Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Afmal Hotra here at Straight Talk. Thank you again for joining our excellent show. Once again, today I have an incredible guest, uh, an extraordinary guest actually, and someone who is going to open our eyes to the future of, of war. And uh, it sounds like a, a depressing topic for many of you, and it's morose and scary, in fact, for those who are not in the military. However, it needs to be addressed and it needs to be um, discussed. So we accelerate our awareness. That's what Stray Talk is, is about. And we have um, a wonderful individual with us today, the, the retired Major General uh, Mick Ryan. Uh, Mick, I'm going to call you Mick if that's okay. Uh, welcome that's to. That's very fine with me. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you for um, giving us an opportunity to take an hour of your time. And uh, I loved uh, reading the the you know the summary of your book. I haven't yet actually finished the book, and it's. Um, I've heard it's very good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, no. So, so have <laughs> I. And I've I've been captivated by so much. You know, uh, your big focus on how history teaches you that war is inev inevitable. Uh, I'm a believer of that. The whole area of what we use, we call at Straight Talk East-West Digital, but also the geopolitics of China, Iran, um, and, and the Western nations. You talk about how change needs to happen, uh, how countries need to work in a cohesive way to look at the 21st century um, way of combating or warfare, virtual and physical. You talked about how you know the character of war has changed, uh, the constant learning and failure that comes from war. And we talk a lot about, you know, you've, you've, you've uh, interestingly launched your book a few weeks before. I don't think it was, uh, I don't think it was uh, deliberate, but coincidental that it was a few weeks before the Russian-Ukraine uh, situation. It was nine days before the Russians began their illegal invasion of Ukraine. Correct. Okay. Right. Okay. And so super topical. And I, I'm sure you've had interview after interview discussing that, which we'll discuss today as well. You talk a lot about new technologies and warfare, which is very important to our community because we are obsessed with digital of all sorts, whether it's AI, machine learning, computer vision, uh, hypersonic, uh, cyber, uh, and, and cyber terrorism and cyber warfare, which doesn't often get discussed in, in, in shows like um, podcasts and so on and so forth. And then you finally talk about um, the future. Uh, what does the future hold? the good stuff and also the scary stuff, you know, mass migrations, uh, climate change. And if things don't go to plan, if we're not able to deal with the aggression of certain nations, where could we end up? And I think that uh, mm. creates what we call a compelling sort of sense of urgency for people to take action, um, uh, you know, who are watching our show. So <clears throat> thank you again. Um, I'd like to start by moving first to you your personal story, who, who is, um, uh, you know, Major General Mick Ryan? I know you've retired just um, quite recently. And uh, what's, your, what's your personal story before we jump into the book? Because that's so important for us. Uh, well, I, I was brought up in a little tiny mining town in uh, my home state of Queensland. So uh, I think there was about a thousand people in the town when we first got there. Um, I went through the public school system for my entire life. In fact, for the first uh, seven years of schooling, I, I don't think I even wore shoes. I wore shorts, a T-shirt and a hat. <laughs> so it was that kind of upbringing. It was wonderful. Right. Uh, it was a kind of town where you, you didn't lock your front door and you never locked your cars. Um, I joined the Army at 17, uh, got a scholarship to 
um, go to the Australian Defence Force Academy, become an army officer and also study civil engineering. Um, I failed that. <laughs> I failed my first year terribly. I think I still have the record for the most subjects in the year failed. But I was given a second chance uh, by a general who was in charge and I was determined that I would both make the most of that second chance but also learn from that second chance that, you know, failure is not all bad uh, and that second chances are very powerful and we should give them to people where, wherever we can. Yeah. But I eventually graduated from the Royal Military College, become a combat engineer, uh, and my career has essentially kind of gone between command of soldiers at the platoon, company, battalion, task force, brigade uh, level, combined arms teams, yeah. Uh, operations in uh, our region and the Middle East um, and a whole lot of strategic postings here and in the United States doing high-level um, strategy in, in military affairs as well as interagency joint joint operations. And that's me. And uh, the start of this year, I retired from the Army after 35 years. Um, I'll be quite frank, I retired very happy, very satisfied uh, adoring the institution that I retired from. But at 53, I was ready to do something different. I wanted to write, to speak, and yeah. contribute to my country in a different way. Yeah, yeah. And was was um, was mil the military background in your family extended or were you the first uh, entrant into this world? Um, I, I had a grandfather who was in the Air Royal Australian Air Force in the Second World War. I had a great uncle who was in the Army in Papua New Guinea in the Second World War, but it, it wasn't a military tradition. I was kind of the first of the line, and uh, I don't think my children are going to follow me in that line. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but after thir 35 years, I've probably uh, done the Ryan family bit for at least a generation. Um but it was a wonderful 35 years and I, I wouldn't, frankly, change a thing. It was just amazing. Incredible. Uh, and it's great to hear that, you know, in any line of work, um, to come out of that work in a, and move into a different phase of your life and feel content, feel satisfied. Mm. It's actually a great feeling. Whatever happens today, you know, to, life is so volatile, as we've, we've known um, during the COVID times. So it's fantastic to hear that. And it's actually a great, it's a great uh, advert for those, many of us, and especially the Gen Zs. We have a lot of young people who watch the show as well, who are considering uh, different professions, the military being one of them. Some are reticent, unsure, some are um, gung-ho and driven. And I think it's great to see leaders who demonstrate that they come out of that space and now are authors and are using their intellect and their experience and wisdom to envision a future and a future that could be good for us potentially or at least we're trying to we're trying you're trying to yes and that's a good thing um thank you for that and i, th I think um you know that honesty and that um, authenticity as a leader which is what you are um is reflected in in the book to a large degree and i want to start with the book if that's okay so the title is war transformed uh, very powerful and uh, the sort of subheading is the future of 21st century great power competition and conflict. Um, I want to use, um, I want to focus on that word conflict for a moment because you have a lot of experience in that. And there is something that bothers me and a lot of our straight talkers for a, for a long time, 
which is that um, it feels like human beings, civilization, in, the, in relation to war and conflicts, hasn't really changed much, I would argue. If you look back at history, and we are students mm -hmm. of history too, thousands and thousands of years ago, God knows how many examples we want to take, it feels like whilst there was some peace or some moments of peace over the last, you know, uh, 30, 40, 50 years or so-ish, um, the type of war that we see coming our way, it may not be conventional as in on, on the battlefield, but it's, it's, um, it's, very, it, it, it's very catastrophic in its own way. I mean, cyber warfare has its own implications that can destroy civilization and societies and economies overnight. Um, I want to remain hopeful. I do want to remain hopeful, but I want to ask you how you feel about this concept of conflict and what's your view as someone who's been at the center of it and now looking 50,000 feet mm. out. Um, what's, what's your belief in humankind um, and conflict? Where's it going to end up in your view? <laughs> um, uh, I'm an optimist. I actually hope our nature doesn't change because the reality is we like every animal on this planet, are competitive entities. Yeah. Um, and competition actually has far more positive outcomes than negative. I mean, every now and then you get uh, some mainly authoritarian person who decides that war is the way they want to resolve some kind of competitive urge that they personally or, or their regime feels. But the competitive nature of humans largely has led to most progress, whether it's uh, competition in the arts, which has given us great music and, and paintings and, and films, whether it's competition in sport, whether it's competition in technology, whether it's competition in different forms of democratic systems. Um, humans' competitive nature is largely positive, has seen us progress uh, in many aspects of governance. We're not perfect. Uh, we may have perfect aspirations about our about humanity, but we're, we're not quite there yet. So I think competition is largely a good thing, and I don't want that to change. It's just that we need to ensure that in that competitive verge, we have the mechanisms to minimise the chance for war. And when there is warfare, we ensure that those systems that value individuals uh, value um, liberty and freedom of expression, freedom of religion, are the ones that win those competitive things that we call wars. Right. Yeah. And and the um, the journey that we've been on with war, of course. And I just want to step back and look at the findings of the book. So, <clears throat> when you started writing this book, because I believe you wrote a bunch of, uh, you were researching and writing a bunch of things, and then you decided to construct it as a book and so on. Um, the thing about books is, uh, I find it interesting, that you dedicate yourself for a period of time and you, you get immersed in the subject. And then when you've written it, you think, hmm, uh, I want to put some other stuff in there as well. And now it's published. And then you think about your next book and then you think, well, actually, I need to. And so I'm sure you're going down that path soon. When you started to write this and now you've finished it and you've been on the interview circuit and so on. Um, it's a slightly different question, not about the findings of your book, which we'll come to. But uh, I'll jump ahead with the conversations you're having, like here today and various other people. What bits do you think you would want to add to this book if you just had a few more months to go back and make some edits and then republish again? 
with what you've just picked up in, in the world? Because things are changing at, at nanosecond rate. Um, I wouldn't change a lot because um, the war in Ukraine was entirely unsurprising to me. I mean, I one part of the book, I really took issue with the decline of war, decline of violence um, crowd. Um, you know, they're, they're, I think they're trying to make a living by telling us that, you know, humans are, uh, are getting less competitive and are less likely to go to war. I, I just don't see the evidence for that. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't actually change a lot at the moment. But if there was one thing I would really probably double down on is the power of good leadership. Uh, I think we've seen that over the last five months where good leadership uh, from, you know, President of Ukraine has saved his nation. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, but bad leadership has led Russia into this catastrophe for the Ukrainian people, but also down the line for Russia as well. I mean, this isn't going to end well for Russia, regardless right. of what happens in the war. So, uh, you know, the centrality of good leadership and the tribulations of bad leadership is probably something I'd look at even in more depth. Yeah, and that's interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on that for a second. So when you talk about leadership, because that's fundamental to decision making, um, you know, in war or outside of war, <coughs> leading up to war, after war, right? <coughs> Excuse me. So with um, with Ukraine and Russia, we'll touch on it just for, for a few moments. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you see this when you talk about bad leadership or good leadership. And um, I have to say, I mean, Zelensky, we all know his past and we know how mm -hmm. he's, and it's almost accidental. It's an, he's almost mm -hmm. an accidental leader. And... Um, there is something that is very important that I know you talk a lot about, very important in, in 21st century warfare, which is technology, especially social media. And I think it would have been a massive surprise, uh, unplanned or unprecedented for the Russians to feel or realize that social media, and we've seen this many times before in the spring, uh, you know, the um, Arab Spring and so on, has actually enabled an individual to become a leader. Of many people, of just not not his nation, of actually many nations. Just recently, he got uh, Zelensky got a, 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 the Churchill Award, I think, yesterday or the day before, yeah. or so on. And so, tell us a bit about uh, what are, what are the traits of good leadership as you see mm -hmm. it? Because you know the the corporate would describe it maybe similar, but a little bit different. But what is good leadership in the world of military? Uh, just define it for us. Um, there is only one form of good leadership and it doesn't matter what world you live in. <laughs> um, good corporate leadership is exactly the same as good military leadership, which is the same as good community leadership, which is the same as good government leadership. There is no difference. There's just leadership. So I, I'd make that point. But there's a couple of things that I, I believe define good leaders. The first one is they're confident in their own abilities and in their own skin and in being themselves without being so arrogant they can't ask for advice mm. um, or receive advice or act on advice. So that there's that confidence versus humility that's well-balanced. The second thing is good leaders provide um, a plan for their people, for those they lead. You know, they provide direction or vision. 
Um, another thing, and I think this is the most important thing that leaders provide is purpose. Hmm. They provide the why things are done. Um, leaders can task people, they can provide direction, um, but that doesn't inspire people. That doesn't enable innovation. It doesn't enable individual uh, kind of thought. Uh, but when you provide purpose, you enable people to think about achieving things differently in order to achieve that purpose, um, and you inspire them in the darkest hours. Um, Churchill did that, uh, and Zelensky is doing that now. He has inspired his people mm. in their darkest hour for many decades, and he has inspired many people and many government leaders overseas uh, with purpose. So I, I think, you know, they're the core elements of good leadership. And there's lots of other elements you could add in there about being an example and, and have being a good manager and these kind of things. But I think they're the core aspects that are really, really important. And, and I guess when you, um, when you are a good leader and you're, you're demonstrating some of these traits and behaviours, you also need a, a structure around you, a set of people around you who can <laughs> complement your leadership style because it's not a solo act. How have no. you seen that playing out? I mean, some examples in your book or in, in your personal um, life as, as a leader, mm. where has that worked well and where, where, does it, where does it fall apart, no matter how great you are as a leader? Well, you, you've got to have a, a constant interaction with those you lead. Yeah. Um, there's lots of different ways you can do that. I mean, you can do it through meetings, you can do it just through walking around, you can do it uh, virtually through social media. So you need to have an interaction with people to, to appreciate um, the journey that you're taking people on, to see how they're living it, seeing how they're reacting, seeing um, how they might provide new and different forms of advice to you so you can evolve both your direction as well as your leadership style. So, you know, I think I think that's really important. But the structure is vital. You need to provide priorities. Uh, you need to ensure that you have the right people around you, some of whom should be selected because you disagree with them. Uh, you need that person whispering in your ear, Caesar, thou art mortal, as hard as that is. And I tell you, it is hard sometimes uh, when you're trying to get things done. So, you know, they, these are the important structural pieces that you need as a leader. And you need to be constantly assessing. If you've asked or directed something to be done, you don't just move on. You need to make sure it's being done. Trust but verify, mm. I think, was Ronald Reagan's mantra. But it's a very important one as a leader. Mm. And on the flip side, so bad leadership, I guess it's the opposite of all of those things to some extent. But give us some um, some examples of the situation now when you talk about Russia, you gave the example of Russia. So what is bad leadership there? What, 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 is, he, what is he doing or they doing that, uh, you know, makes you feel like, well, that's totally suboptimal? Mm. Well, I think bad leadership, firstly, is uh, making some bad assumptions upon which you make very large decisions. I mean, the assumptions of Putin leading into this war were, uh, firstly, Ukraine wasn't a real country. Secondly, they probably wouldn't defend themselves. Third, that the West would not uh, stand up and support them. Now, you could make one or two of those assumptions and maybe scrape your way through 
but all of them are wrong. Um, so, you know, good leaders test their assumptions before they make the big decisions. If I was to look further down, um, his military leadership has not been very inspiring so far in this war. Most of the soldiers went into it without actually knowing they were going to war. I mean, that is, that's just terrible. It's unethical. Um, you know, I can't imagine that happening in a democratic system. Hmm. And uh, whilst we're talking about Russia, let's talk a little bit about uh, one of the other nations that you've talked about in the book repeatedly, China. And, um, you know, back uh, at uh, Straight Talk, we talk, um, we discuss and we debate this concept of the three spheres a lot, East, West and Digital. I think almost like a sandwich as well, actually, East, Digital, West and so on, where we believe that there's going to be seismic change in the world order uh, because of digital and other factors too. And there will be an East, and East is subdefined in many ways, and um, there will be a West, and West um, may or may not, the West may or may not comply with one another. The Allies may yeah. not uh, agree on basic things like, it sounds absolutely facetious, but cryptocurrency regulation. Um, you know, so there will be disagreements in many ways, and there will be these microcosms that get built. So it'll be a very different West, I, you know, I think, and that's what we're hearing from a lot of our past speakers and authors and so on, and I'm interested in your opinion. Tell us about your view on China. Uh, again, this is straight talk, so you can speak candidly. Uh, what's your, uh, what, what's really going on there? And uh, Xi Jinping, for some people, and you, I've heard you talk about this, for some people there's a, a view that uh, China is um, dominant in every way, shape and form. We know economically they've played certain cards. Uh, but strategy is something you like to talk about as a leader. Uh, walk us through how strategy is done well and not done so well and clear some of the myths for us, at least your opinion on whether China is actually executing strategy extremely well or actually you think it's something else. Yeah, no, I think China is a great example of bluffing a lot of people that they're good strategists and they always have a long-term view. And I think the last few years under President Xi has been an example of neither. Um, they've been very short-term in their outlook. There's a there is a clear impatience uh, in Xi to achieve a lot of things in his lifetime that has not been characteristic of some of his predecessors. And I think that's led him to make some really profound mistakes in coercive activities against countries that were kind of wavering about their views of China. So I, I think the myth of they're always long-term thinkers has been busted in many respects over the last couple of years. But I also think their strategic approach over the last few years where they have sought to coerce countries, where they've bullied others, um, and where they've made themselves a target whereas previous leaders may not have, hasn't actually been a terribly strategic approach. Their wolf warrior um, arrogance has backfired against China in ways they probably didn't anticipate, um, which means they didn't think it through, which means it wasn't terribly strategic. So, you know, I think at the moment China is a big country. It is a longstanding and great civilization but it's suffering through a period of uh, leadership that isn't very inspired um, and I think is very short-term in approach in how it's seeking to achieve 
um, strategic outcomes or what it thinks are strategic outcomes for the CCP in particular mm-hmm. and the preservation of the power of the CCP, uh, but also, I guess, for there's some thought in there for the Chinese people, but it's not obvious that that's always the case. Mm. It's interesting you say that. It's a, it's a contrarian view and it's a, it's a good view. How does that translate to something that most people are concerned about, which is Taiwan at this point? Uh, of course, the world economy is volatile. We all believe that some sort of a major recession, mm. a threat is coming our way, which impacts all societies in Western and, and actually emerging countries too, to a large degree. I think they'll see a much higher um, mm. you know, net impact of inflation than, than even the West. Uh, what's your view um, on Taiwan and China's interest in Taiwan? I mean, there's a speculation, but as a leader, in former leader in the military, is this going to happen or is this just sort of, again, um, hearsay? Well, I'd say it's certainly not hearsay. President Xi has been very explicit in his speeches, particularly if they're read in Chinese about the future of Taiwan. It belongs to China. Right. Um, there is no room for misinterpretation of what he's been saying. There is no grey here. It is extraordinarily black and white. Now, the problem we have with how he has been behaving in the last few years is it means um, hubris and miscalculation are part of uh, how we need to ponder the future of Taiwan over the coming years. Um, wars don't always start through calculations. <laughs> they often start through miscalculations. So we shouldn't think there's some kind of straight-line thinking that will result in a war or, or not a war. Often it's a discontinuity or an unexpected event which um, snowballs into something that neither side expects. So Taiwan may come out of uh, an entirely unexpected event um, and it might happen much sooner than people anticipate. I mean, the lessons that President Xi, uh, the Central Military Commission and the CCP are learning from Ukraine uh, may be very different to what we think is, le- is learning. I mean, we can't project our, our historical and ethnic biases on, you know, a civilization like China or other, other great civilizations. So they may learn that actually doing this quicker than we anticipate at a time when they perceive the West as weak in other areas uh, may become the reality, or they may decide to wait longer. I mean, you can't predict these things, but um, my sense is this is probably something that's going to happen sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the implications are huge um, for all economies and for, for um, civic civic peace and just for us to continue our lives the way we need to i mean the stock market for 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 one is could have um the the worst collapse we've ever seen given that the semiconductor industry is so dependent on on taiwan and and there's so many other factors that come through it so so that's a little bit about china Uh, let's talk a little bit about the future of war then so you've got these various countries doing what they are the world order seems to be changing because of a variety of megatrends and forces out of our control, as you call them, the discontinuities, that now we can connect the dots and say, well, that was a discontinuity uh, or that was an unexpected, unprecedented event or a black swan or whatever the term may be. Then um, now we are coming back to the core of your book, really. So when you say war is, has transformed or is transforming both, mm-hmm. 
define that for us and what are the big highlights there what should we process because i, I know mm. people want to read the book as well but what should we take away from this well um <clears throat> there's two elements there is there's lots of discontinuities there's things that are changing so new technologies uh, whether it's artificial intelligence sensor networks uh, hypersonics space space things are changing how we can do things um, but there's also a lot of continuities. Um, what we do has remained the same, fight. Um, good leadership remains essential. How we fight, there's a lot of continuities, as in we try to achieve surprise against each other. So whilst war is transforming, and there's a lot of books out there that cover just the things that are new, we shouldn't forget that there are a lot of things that are remaining the same. And the most important thing that is remaining the same is the enduring nature of war, which is that humans are seeking to impose their will upon one another and that war, whilst it's fought by militaries and there's lots of dimensions, is ultimately political um, rather than many of the other things that people might say it is. Hmm. Do you see war as... Um because right now it's happening on the ground in Ukraine because it's real. But when you think about virtual war and as AI gets stronger and stronger mm. and more pervasive, to what extent do you see that balance changing where cyber warfare, uh, you know, destabilizing countries at the core and then maybe then attacking them, you know, strategy, mm. one of the strategies of war. Uh, how do you see that playing out and un un unraveling over the coming um, years? Mm. Yeah, I think there's a couple of interesting points that we might note here. Firstly, um, you know, this notion of virtual warfare is absolutely nothing new. I mean, violence and influence have always been the two parts of, of warfare, um, whether it's violence to influence someone or um, to influence someone. Uh, without violence. I mean, they've been two parts of warfare forever. So, you know, cyber in many respects, is a continuation of a long tradition of warfare in trying to attack the mind of an adversary just through different ways, whether it's shutting down systems or spoofing them or deceiving them about different things. But um, it's a new means for achieving an old objective, which is getting to the head of an enemy commander and make them think something that you want them to think. Um, so, you know, I think that's cyber and influence operations um, uh, a continuity. The interesting thing, however, though, in influence operations with big data, with some really clever analytics, with um, some bespoke algorithms, yeah. we can now uh, detect and target populations, subpopulations with a level of precision uh, that's never been possible before and at scale in a way that's never been possible. And then we can measure the impact better than we ever have before. It's not perfect uh, in any form, but, you know, all those kind of things are new ways of generating influence against individuals and whole populations in a way that's quite unprecedented in human history. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So it's it, violence influence, part of the part of the core tenants of how war happens and then this this almost is a bit of an enabler and accelerator to some extent because of its form factor mm. what do you think about there's one, one thing playing on my mind uh, just because we're talking about ai so this concept of, and you talked about politics this concept of uh, disinformation i mean it's been used in so mm. many 
so many uh, battles and combats and historically we see this manifested in, <coughs> in 21st century, 19th century and beyond warfare, which talks to violence and influence. When you think of deep fakes, because so this AI field of computer vision, which is you and I, this is real. So this is definitely real. So a detector could come and try this out and we're definitely real. You won't, you can unpick the frames and we haven't made this stuff mm. up. Your voice is yours, mine is mine and so on and so forth. But the future holds some very uh, scary things for us where deep fake technology is rising at a rapid rate. The, the, yep. the, the deep fake detectors aren't as advanced as the deep fake creators are at this point, always mm -hmm. sort of that way. It's like the hacking system. So it's sort of worrying to, to know that a discontinuity or an unplanned event, or maybe a planned event of a series of deep fakes that go into the political frame, let's say it's before an election or um, forcing an election or something along those lines, which could create a conflict between one nation and another nation. <coughs> That's a real form of warfare. Do you, um, what's your view on that um, in terms of it being one of the tools that countries or nations will use? I mean, it could be used in the West. It could be, I mean, I'm in London, you, know, <coughs> you live in Brisbane. Um, it could be used uh, as a standard means of destabilizing and, um, you know, uh, creating havoc or um, uh, sort of chaos in an economy at a social, uh, civic level as well. So mm -hmm. have you got an opinion on that? And there's so many others. I mean, hypersonic, you talk about many other factors, but deepfake really gets me going because I study that in a lot of detail. Yeah, I mean, mm. I'm not as concerned by it. I don't think it's a strategic tool. Um, you don't need deep fakes to have um, videos of politicians that say things that sow deep discord. I mean, there's enough real stuff out there <laughs> doing that. The deep fakes really aren't required to foster the kind of divisions in society that you can then use social media and, and bots yeah. for and against. Uh, and we've seen that, you know, we, we've, we've seen that in election campaigns, particularly in the US, but be, beyond that. Um, yeah. and, and frankly, if deep fakes, you know, there was an incident where a deep fake did have a significant uh, effect like that, you're going to see counter technologies. I mean, that's just human nature, right? We, we always come up with counters to things that hurt us. Um, and I would propose that, you know, autonomous systems, we're seeing something the same at the moment. Investment in autonomous systems and lethal autonomous systems in the last 20 years has outstripped the development of counter-autonomy systems mm. until now. And I think Ukraine has been a demonstration that um, military institutions will need to double down their investment in counter-autonomy systems. Um, and I think, you know, deep fakes will be the same. If there's a significant use that has a bad impact, countries will double down their investment in the technologies yeah. to counter Deep fakes. There's always a counter. We may not know what it is at the moment, but there's always one. Humans are endlessly creative and imaginative in these kind of things. Okay, good to know. Um, you talk about Friedman's view, delu delusional strategy. You know, you, um, you know you've talked about a, that a lot. Tell us what that means mm. and uh, in what context. Yeah, no, so this was uh, Sir Lawrence Friedman, um, <clears throat> a magnificent academic and strategist from the United Kingdom. Um, who wrote an article that where he called Putin's strategy for Ukraine delusional because of the kind of assumptions that I've already described. Um, and I think it was a really apt uh, uh, description because 
Putin was deceiving himself about reality. Um, you know, if you read Dixon's book on the psychology of military incompetence, he talks about, you know, this whole deceiving oneself through one's biases, not getting evidence and all these kind of things. So, you know, I think um, Sir Lawrence's use of the term was entirely uh, apt. I think there was and is sufficient evidence uh, to back it up because it's very hard to see Russia um, winning this war. I mean, you know, even if they were to successfully take over Ukraine, which I don't think is going to happen, but even if they did, where's the victory in that? I mean, they would be an international pariah that have 44 million Ukrainians who despise them. So there, there's no pathway to victory for Russia out of this. So in that regard, I think Sir Lawrence Friedman's term is, is entirely true. Yeah, beautiful. And when you think about strategies again, and I, I want to move you to the West now, uh, and whichever part of the West you'd like to pick, let's start with this, this mm -hmm. the United States. Just because it's a pretty loose definition. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. probably one definition for every person who uses it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's very subjective. Let's go just go to the, the United States for a moment um, mm -hmm. for all the good reasons, <clears throat> because you talk about mosaic warfare and <clears throat> the notion you, you talk, you, you call it a notion where there's a simultaneous use of cyber influence, military force uh, to ov overwhelm or confuse, you know, your 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 enemy. And it's about speed. It's about, un, un, you know, complexity and so on and so forth. So uh, the United States has an interesting strategic position now uh, globally, uh, especially in regard to U Ukraine, but also now with China. What, what um, and I guess you have colleagues that you engage with, again, you know, this part of part of your previous remit. Uh, where is the United States in all of this now with the complexities yeah. uh, globally? What's what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's in a tough spot. Um, you know, it's probably uh, it's had the most powerful military that's ever existed in human history. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, and it probably still is in that position, although China's trying to eat, eat away at that, but I don't think it's there. Um, it's, you know, constructed an economy that is a modern wonder, um, at least until recently in in generating prosperity for a large proportion, not all, but a large proportion of its population, but there's there's no society that's made the entirety of its population um, prosperous in history, and so we need to give them a little bit of a break there. Um, but it's now coming up against a strategic competitor who not only is investing a lot in technologies to challenge American technological dominance is not only generating wealth to challenge American economic power, but is proposing a different architecture for how the world works, one where um, individual expression and value is subverted into a collective where the collective direction is not determined by members of it other than a very small unelected self-appointed group of old men generally um, and all those challenges the economic the technological and the ideological um, are very difficult to challenge particularly when your own internal systems yeah. are having uh, some aging problems let's put it that way you know um, 
It doesn't mean the Americans can't reform themselves. I do think they will, actually. I've got a lot of confidence in the American system for re-energisation and reinvigoration. But they're just at a point in their cycle where the internal problems make dealing with some of their external problems just that little more challenging. Mm. Um, I'm an optimist with America. Um, You never write the Americans off. They've been endlessly inventive about their own systems and how they do things. Um, But China is probably the toughest competitor that they've ever come up against. Mm -hmm. And um, when you think about one of the other issues, which is climate, um, and it's an interesting one because on the one hand, we've talked a lot about climate on this show, climate realism, as we call it. So we leave all the noise out. But with climate, there's been a massive focus for many generations it's quite important because the, the next few generations we call them the gen z's or the gen alphas or even the millennials to some extent they have this uh, very clear view and a sense of purpose actually uh, towards making their world better in whatever way shape or form not that the older generations didn't but we just had a f- different mandate at that point different way of living a different architecture as you call it so uh, many people were hopeful around climate until recently and then this cop 26 happened some people are like well it's never we're, we're never going to be able to control this because of all of these factors and now the wars happened with ukraine there's an energy crisis in europe in particular as you know germany is is massively exposed and so are the other countries the uk included we've we've gone down the brexit path so who knows mm-hmm. where we're going to end up um so the energy crisis is going on uh, there could be a high likelihood that people especially emerging countries will gas will become really expensive um the price of oil is going to go up to 150 170 a barrel plus and we'll start to just for debt from points of scarcity and desperation and need start to use coal again so that throws all of those co2 ambitions and net zero ambitions in the dustbin really we've never really talked about the implication of war um the use of weaponry and, uh, and actually, I don't know the answer, but I'm asking you maybe a very simple question mm-hmm. for our audience. How does war and the use of <clears throat> weapons, which are made up of different molecules and chemicals and so on and so forth, how does that, how does that Im- impact climate change? It might be a really stupid yeah. question, but let's, let's just be, let's get it clear. No, I mean, I, you know, mm. I don't think people shooting each other are really going to do much to raise the temperature of the atmosphere. There's a, there's a whole lot of other contributors. I think cow methane is probably going to contribute more. But, you know, I think the um, relationship between climate change and military institutions and operations is a really important one. And I think there are a whole range of interactions and outcomes uh, that we might uh, hypothesise, you know, um, as governments are forced to deal with climate change mitigation and response measures, yeah. it's going to put pressure on their budgets and that's going to put pressure on military budgets. Um, I also think the kinds of things that military institutions do in the future will be shaped by responding to climate change events, uh, particularly, you know, if the atmosphere is warming and the oceans are warming. That I mean, that's just physics, right? There's more energy in the system, so you're starting to get more powerful hurricanes on the east coast of the United States, more powerful cyclones and typhoons in, uh, you know, Australia and, and East Asia um, and throughout Asia, actually. 
So you're going to have to have more military response systems or, or other mechanisms that will take away from military resources. So, you know, I, I think there's more of a conversation about the impacts of climate change on military institutions uh, in the coming years. I mean, uh, you know, I get sick of these these people who are still trying to fight the is climate change happening. It's like, you know, there has never been a single thing that there's been more evidence for in human history, I think. Mm. Um, it's time to, you know, really make the hard decisions about mitigation, about slowing and, and hopefully reversing yeah. uh, this process at some point in our near future because if we don't, you know, this is an existential threat to human beings on this planet. And, uh, you know, if you're not willing to stand up and fight for the existence of human beings i mean what what's the point of this whole whole thing of us eight billion humans on the planet yeah yeah i'm with you i'm with you that's a fair point <clears throat> i want to move to a recruitment for a second um i'm intrigued so over the years uh, different countries have had some people have certain rules and conscription and you know it's mandatory uh, Israel is a good example. And interestingly, because we study the startup economy, there's so much innovation happening because of defense in the startup world. And then all these big unicorns and decacorns are built and this prosperity mm-hmm. <laughs> indirectly back into, into the economies. It's interesting, the effects of military-based grounding and how innovation is catalyzed mm-hmm. on the back of that. What's, what's the face and what's the shape of general recruitment and interest in joining the military? I mean, you could take a, you could give me a broad view like you in the East, this is going on, or part in India, this is going on in China, this is going on in Australia, this is going on in, in the UK, this is going What Are people still wanting to join uh, the military, uh, especially the younger generation? Because of course we're clear mm-hmm. about their views. Is that a problem? Uh, or is it not a problem because robots and you know cyborgs are gonna get, they're gonna fight the war, or widgets and bots are gonna fight the war in the next twenty five years? So what what's going on? No, there? no. Well, you know, military institutions are still recruiting people. Um, we're still getting people through the door, and it goes through cycles like everything. You know, uh, when economies are strong, uh, the competition for people is stronger. When economies are weaker, the competition's not as not as strong. It's a cyclical thing. But, um, you know, there's there are some out there who will say, you know, the millennials aren't as interested in military service or they're this or they're that. Well, I, I have to uh, respectfully disagree and say that's total bunkum. Uh, I have spent years dealing with 18 to 25-year-olds, 35 of them actually, and I haven't seen a lot of difference over that time in the motivations of why people serve in the, uh, in a whole range of areas of capability. Uh, are people fitter now? Probably not as fit as they used to be, but that's fine. It's about motivations and character is really what you try and get through the door. And you can get anyone fit if they've got the right character. You can train them to do what they need if they've got the right character. Mm. And my view is the millennial generation, like all those before them, have got the same character. They have the same ethos of service. They just have different aspirations and they have different things that distract them from the world around them than, say, my generation did. It's not better, it's not worse. Mm. And I've been extraordinarily impressed by the millennial generation that will assume the mantle of leadership in our army uh, because they're really, really good, really good. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear um, because we hear the same thing in, in corporate jobs, right, where the, the, the 
the caliber, <clears throat> the speed of, of thought, the decision-making abilities, just the, the broad nature and exposure that that generation has is, is different. Mm. Do you, um, do you think, you know, when you talk about the, just if you could touch on this, this sort of, when you talk about the West, you know, joining forces, really, um, for the want of another term, and working together to combat some of the threats from certain nations who don't have the same ideals or values. How, how does that actually, I mean, aren't we doing that anyway? Um, how does that, how does that, how is that different from what we're doing today with all of the institutions mm -hmm. that are out there, the UN and, and various others? Um, or are you talking about a whole different paradigm? You're saying, nope, 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 that stuff doesn't work for tomorrow. You know, um, the future. No, the, you know, <clears throat> the way the world works is, is kind of like warfare. You never get rid of an idea. <laughs> They're always there. It's just you, you put new ideas on top of the others. Hmm. Um, you know, I think the, the system of governance that was set up in the wake of the Second World War was a system that was uh, set up by the victors, which included Russia and China. Yeah. Um, they are part of the current global governance and multilateral organisations uh, around the world, equal partners in the things like the UN Security Council, and they have both benefited, particularly China, since its ascension to the World Trade Organisation in the 90s, benefited enormously, enormously by um, this international governance regime and the system of multilateral institutions and, and relationships. So when the Chinese and, and the Russians talk about how they're disadvantaged, it's, it's hard to see the disadvantage uh, in these countries where, you know, they've been made enormously wealthy, although that wealth is probably more concentrated in China, uh, in Russia than it is in China by the current system. Um, there's, there's, there's other reasons they don't like the system, and it's not because they're not full partners in it. Hmm, interesting. And do you, do you think um, <clears throat> the world <clears throat> that you might see in the next decade or so or beyond, um, or let, why don't you describe the world that you think you're going to see in the next 10 years? What's your, what, what's your projection? Well, predictions, as you know, are extraordinarily perilous. It's like predicting the next horse race or predicting the outcome in a warfare. Anytime uh, there is huge human agency involved, it's um, by definition unpredictable. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some of the trends, I think, over the coming years that are going to be important, I mean, um, you're seeing economically, a change in the environment. You're seeing the development of different blocks, I think. You know, the deglobalisation that had, was kind of in evidence before COVID, I think, is accelerating. Um, I think there's potential for technology blocks to form. I'm not convinced it'll happen, but there's potential there for it. I think you're starting to see, I mean, Freedom House does its surveys every year. Um, they are not positive trends at the moment. That has potential to continue just because China in particular has made it attractive to countries to buy some of their technologies and approaches that do not encourage democracy. Um, so, you know, they're the kind of negative trends. But on the flip side of that, as we've seen in Ukraine uh, democracies are pretty resilient, and when they're threatened, they actually can 
really achieve some amazing things to defend themselves and other democracies. Um, and if you have a look at the EU and the United States alone, you know, you're talking about the first and third wealthiest systems uh, on the globe. Uh, they are enormously wealthy, even though, you know, people might say, well, they have big social systems. That's irrelevant. You can always... Um, you look at your systems and how you're spending things when you have that much wealth. Um, so, you know, I think we shouldn't underrate the regenerative power of democracies that are still kind of struggling with how to deal with the most informed electorates that they've ever had. You know, po politicians, I think, are still struggling with having very well-informed electors compared to, say, 30 or 40 years ago. Political systems are still evolving um, I'm optimistic that our governance and political systems will reinvigorate themselves, uh, re-demonstrate their value to their citizens because, you know, confidence in democratic systems and uh, institutions of governance is an issue at the moment in many nations, uh, yours and mine included, but in America probably the most profoundly. So I'm an optimist that, you know, we can work our way through these systems. Uh, and these these challenges, but I do think that you know there is a challenge to democratic governance from China and Russia. They have a narrative of the decline of the West, even though I'm not sure the evidence is there for that. And they feel, particularly you know, in Xi and Putin, some form of manifest destiny about establishing some alternative to the current way things work in the world. Mm. Mm. I'm with you. That's great. I mean, there's some there's some um, positive things in there, and there's some things that we have to reconsider and just think about quite carefully. Uh, final question, and we've we've got to close off. We can talk for hours. Yes, we could. <laughs> yeah, the, the implication of your book, then, um, I mean, who do you write it for, by the way? Who do you write this book for? <clears throat> um, you know, I for me, the first audience is the next generation of military leaders. Right. That's who I always kind of think about. I write it for myself because I just enjoy writing. It's mm. it's a nice way to relax and it's a nice way to, you know, learn more about the world. But, you know, I, I wrote it hopefully in a way that is you can never remove all jargon from these kind of things, whether it's a medical or a military book, but in a way that I hope is accessible to our citizens who need to understand that, you know, wars are just part of human existence uh, that we need a, a military as part of a productive um, democratic system to defend sovereignty and defend our values. And that um, part of that bargain is that we'll be responsible with the people they give us, the resources that we're allocated, and how we use violence. And that's probably the thing that distinguishes between the militaries of democratic systems and the militaries of authoritarian regimes is we have a profound um, uh, belief that we must be responsible and ethical users of violence against any human being, whether they're the enemy or whether they're not. Um, and that's what I think is a really important delineation between the militaries of, say, America or Britain or Australia and those of, say, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. Mm. Got it. That's a great way of closing off our uh, straight talk today. It's been, uh, you know, 
deeply insightful for me to have this discussion with you and get your viewpoints because this is not theory. Uh, you've been on the ground for 35 years. You've got the mm. the, the, the stars and scars. <laughs> you know, I use that term a lot. I use that term a lot. It actually makes a lot of sense now because um, it's 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 real. And um, are you going to write another book? Are you planning to write another book now that you're in flow? Yes. So my next book has already went to the publisher two weeks ago. The manuscript ah. for it. Um, mm. This one is fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is about a very near future war over Taiwan. And it's written from the perspective of a historian about 10 years after the war looking back at it. Um, And it has various characters who command human machine teams or space capabilities and and things like that. So I've taken the fiction route because I think narratives are a good way to engage a wider audience for people to learn and, and think about issues. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. So exciting because we love fiction. We love, I think, science fiction in particular. I always say... Yeah, mate, I'm a science fiction nut. I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because actually, I mean, for, for leasers, if, you know, when we talk about all these new technologies, my message on LinkedIn the other day was, for, just cut the crap. Just go read some science mm. fiction. You will expand yeah. your mind at a level that's unprecedented. And if you want to... Imagine, well, what would we do with an NFT? Well, forget reading the, 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 the paper and the thesis from the academic institution as much as I respect them go read science fiction and um, read a story uh, yeah read a story so happy you're doing that have you got a name for the book yes uh, at this point it will be called white Sun war uh, but we'll see what the publishers think uh, but no I've, I've written science fiction I've even written a science fiction an illustrated science fiction story and uh-huh. run electives using science fiction because I think it is a really powerful way to nurture creativity and expand people's view of the world. Absolutely. Um, that's so exciting. We'd love to get you back on the show when you release that book. And sure. Just describe It'd be my pleasure. Yeah, just yep. describe the narrative for us. So uh, the first half of next year. <clears throat> okay, we'll, we'll bear that in mind. Uh, Mick, it's been a real pleasure having you on Straight Talk. Thank you for your um, candid style and being direct and uh, helping us truly understand where we are today and where we might end up. And um, I've really enjoyed the show. Before we close off, is there anything you'd like to say in terms of the experience today? How do you feel? Um, you know, uh, what was what was your takeaway? Because it's so important that you're engaged and, and you feel different about this as well, you know. Oh, no, I, I love these kind of conversations. I love this format um, because, you know, you, you kind of push me in intellectual directions that are really important. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk today, um, not about my book, but just talk about um, humans and and how they interact. Yeah, it's it's a real pleasure. And we'll get you back on the show. Uh, Thanks again. Um, Where can people find you? I I know the book, we'll promote the book, Mm. of course, but just tell us if someone wants to reach out to you because they have a view or an opinion, open to that and where can we get hold of you? Um, they can go through my website, uh, mickryan.com.au, or my Twitter handle is uh, War in the Future. So they're, they're two ways that you can follow what I'm doing. And yeah. uh, through those, I uh, tweet the, the articles, the numerous articles that I, I put out a uh, couple of week at this point in time. Thank you so much. And uh, be well, take care of yourself. Thank you for contributing this excellent piece of... Um you know, um, 
discourse and almost almost literature as well for us to consume. Yeah. And uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mick. No worries, Ev. It was great to talk to you, mate. Yeah, you too. Take I'll care. Be well. Bye. Adios.